Thanks to the organizers for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the occasion. It's actually kind of lucky to be the first speaker. Um, so thanks also for that. So I'm going to discuss a... Oh, I see for the program some people are presenting new ideas. I don't have any new ideas, so I'm just presenting old ideas. So maybe I'll make up for the familiarity by their implausibility. Um, I'm going to discuss a pluralistic theory of the good, so I'll say something about happiness. But with apologies to the organizers, I'm not going to say anything about, I'm not going to talk about well-being, um, if that's meant to be a different concept from the concept just of what's good or worth desiring, because um, I don't find it understood that way, a useful concept. So let me briefly explain why I'm not going to talk about well-being. So well-being, as philosophers today understand it, is, is I take it supposed to be a normative concept, which involves or implies reasons to act. But it's also an agent-relative concept, since your well-being contains those things that are good for you. That's the distinctive concept of well-being, that it's what's good for you. But then the reasons it generates must also be agent-relative. If your pleasure is good for you, then that by itself gives you and only you reason to promote it. But surely other people have reasons to promote your pleasure. And to get that result, we need a supplementary claim such as that your well-being is simply your agent neutrally good, that it's a good thing that you should enjoy well-being. But now I ask, what work is the concept of well-being doing? We've got a view that says your well-being is simply good, your pleasure is an aspect of your well-being, therefore your pleasure is good. Now how does that view differ from one that says simply um, that your pleasure is good? And more specifically, what do the references to well-being add to that view? I don't see that they add anything besides an extra layer of verbiage, and I'm just going to set them aside. Now, it shouldn't make any difference to what I say, because the substantive questions the conference program poses about what has value or what's worth pursuing come out the same if they're framed as ones just about the good, which is the way I put them, or as ones about well-being. So, a bit of a generalization, but I think economists and psychologists seem to favor simple or monistic theories of the good, ones with just a single ultimate good. So for the late 19th century economists, that was just good feeling, called sometimes pleasure and sometimes happiness. And that seems to be the view of some present-day psychologists who are likewise evaluative hedonists. I don't know if you know, if you know the book, Daniel Gilbert's book, Stumbling Upon Happiness. That just assumes hedonism about the good um, at the start without any argument. Um, and of course, for many 20th century economists, the one good was preference satisfaction, which is different from pleasure, but still a single good. But our literary and philosophical traditions contain many objections to these views, ones that point to a pluralistic understanding of what's good, one affirming a number of distinct ultimate goods. Now, these, these objections have traditionally been directed mostly at hedonism, but they apply equally to preference views, and I see them as taking two principal forms. First form says that if, for example, hedonism is true, then a life can be supremely good if it contains just mindless passive pleasures, ones that involve no intellect or development of skill. Now, a very early version of that um, objection comes in, the, in Homer's description of the lotus eaters in the Odyssey. There's an, another one, obviously, in Huxley's Brave New World. And a third is Nozick's example of the experience machine. I mean, if pleasure were the only good, then a life is one of Huxley's epsilons, or enjoying pleasurable illusions on Nozick's machine would be an ideal life, yet most of us find <coughs> these lives deeply impoverished. And the same basic objection applies to a preference view. Because if someone wants only the pleasures of Soma and Feelies, as Huxley's epsilons do, they're glad they're epsilons, they don't want to be alphas or betas, or wants only pleasure regardless of whether it's illusory, then his getting what pleasure that pleasure makes his life best. And as I said, many of us find those claims pretty hard to accept. 
The second uh, form of objection to hedonism says that if hedonism is true, then morally vicious pleasures, such as a torturer's sadistic pleasure in his victim's pain, are purely good, and their presence makes both their subject's life and the overall situation better. We should want torturers to take intense pleasure in their victim's pain. And analogously, compassionate pain, for example, pain at a torture victim's suffering, is a bad thing and makes your life and the situation worse. But many of us take exactly the opposite view. Sadistic pleasure is bad insofar as it's sadistic, um, and usually bad on balance, while compassionate pain is good insofar as it's compassionate and often good on balance. It'll still be bad insofar as it's painful, but it'll also be good insofar as it's compassionate and usually often good on balance. And the same objection applies to preference views. If a torturer wants to torture his victim or wants to get pleasure from doing so, then on a preference view, those things count as purely good. So just maybe an obvious point. These are just intuitive objections to hedonism and preference views. We contemplate the experience machine or sadistic pleasure, and we just have the immediate reaction that the one is not the best and that the other one is bad rather than good. And there are obviously difficulties about how reliable are our intuitions, what do we do when people's intuitions disagree. But there really is no other way to do things in ethics. And certainly, you know, the hedonism assumed by Daniel Gilbert or the preference theories assumed by economists have no more solid foundation than one in intuition. So those are two objections, one about mindless pleasures, one about morally vicious pleasures, and they point to a pluralistic approach that recognizes more goods than just good feeling. So before I try to identify those additional goods, let me say a couple of things about feeling, which most pluralistic views do count as one good thing among others. So first, I'm not a, well, I do think good feeling is a good thing, but I don't think it's a very good thing. In particular, I don't think it's as greater good is its opposite, opposite suffering is an evil. Like G.E. Moore, I think pain is more evil than pleasure is good. If I imagine a world containing only intense mindless pleasure, like Brave New World, I think it's a little bit good, but not very good. But if I imagine a world containing only intense mindless pain, I think that's very, very evil. Second, the good feeling can be called, referred to either as pleasure or as happiness. The two words aren't equivalent. Um, for one thing, um, the latter seems higher toned. I mean, happiness is a higher toned word than pleasure. The U.S. Declaration of Independence wouldn't sound so impressive if it posited rights to, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of pleasure. And I think the word happiness has got different connotations, in particular, of something more expansive or extended. And so I, I see two kind of distinctive, possible distinctive meanings of happiness. On the first, Happiness, as opposed to pleasures that are discrete items in your consciousness, you can have this pleasure and that pleasure and that pleasure, happiness is more a feeling that pervades your consciousness um, and colors everything in it. It's a kind of overall positive mood that makes other things feel better. Now, I don't know if you know, people, you know Daniel Habern's book about happiness. That's the way he understands happiness as a kind of pervasive good feeling. And on the second reading, happiness is a feeling with an especially extended object. Here to be happy is to feel good about your life as a whole in all its aspects and considering its past, present, and pro probable future. It's to have a feeling of life satisfaction or to feel, about, feel good about your life on balance. So I think one of the talks later is about life satisfaction, and this is happiness as life satisfaction, but not just as a judgment, a bare cognitive judgment about your life, but as a feeling, a positive feeling about your life as a whole. Now some philosophers 
have thought that happiness, as distinct from pleasure, is more worth seeking. And there's a ground for that if the feelings called happiness tend to be longer lasting. But issues of duration aside, I don't see any ground for preferring happiness to other good feelings. If their intensities are the same, I don't see why a pervasive happy mood is better than the pleasure of a massager from eating chocolate. Likewise, I don't see why life satisfaction of intensity N at a time is more worth having than a pleasure of the same intensity N from eating chocolate at that time. Considered as, a feel, as feelings, these all have value for how they feel, and if they feel equally good, at least for me, they've got equal value. So that's a little comment about happiness. It's different from pleasure, but I don't see that it's intrinsically more valuable than pleasure. But those are feelings, and the distinctive elements in a pluralistic view of the good are the additional ones. Uh, what are they? So let me take those suggested by the two main objections in turn. The objection about mindless pleasures suggests a number of non-moral goods additional to feeling, and two in particular are suggested by Nozick's experience machine. What's disturbing about life on the machine is that for all the pleasure you enjoy, you're cut off from reality, not having the relations to your surroundings that normal life involves. And that points to two goods that center on such relations. The first of these is knowledge. It involves having true beliefs about the world or a picture of it that matches how the world is. That's one relation to reality, but to count as knowledge, a belief must also be justified, which usually involves another relation. It's by causally interacting with your surroundings, for example, by perceiving them, that you acquire the evidence that makes your belief justified. So in two key respects, it's involving truth and it's involving justification. <coughs> knowledge connects you to things outside your mind. Now, the knowledge you most signally lack on the experience machine is of where you are in the world. So you think you're climbing a mountain, if that's the fantasy you chose, or making love to a movie star, but in <coughs> fact you're sitting motionless in the machine. Now, I actually don't think the knowledge of where you are in space is especially valuable. I mean, if somebody with a painful terminal illness you know, is at a hospital room, you don't say, well, his life is worth living because he knows he's on the fourth floor of the hospital. Um, that knowledge isn't particularly valuable. It's more that being mistaken about where you are in the world, having false beliefs about where you are, is significantly evil. Um, and some other knowledge, for example, about how many blades of grass there are on a particular lawn, also doesn't have much value. But some other knowledge is, I think, significantly good. And here, at least, two features of it are relevant. One is how extended the content of your knowledge is. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about which forms of knowledge are the most worth having. One is how extended the content of your knowledge is, or how much of the world it's about. That's one reason why knowledge of scientific laws is valuable, because it affirms something true of all or at least many objects in the universe, whereas knowledge of blades of grass is just about one small place at one time. And the other feature is how explanatory an item of knowledge has been. That is, how many other things you've used it to explain and thus understand. So here again, scientific laws tend to score highly, since you can use them to explain many particular phenomena. But, but counting blades of grass doesn't count highly. Um, the most valuable knowledge this feature implies is organized in a kind of hierarchy with general principles explaining a number of more specific principles, each of which explains a great many particular facts. So what the hierarchy embodies is understanding a kind of a unified set of phenomena. So that's the first relational good is knowledge. The second relational good is achievement, which I see as the obverse of knowledge. So in knowledge, the world is a certain way, and you form a belief that matches the world. In achievement, you first form a goal in your mind, and then you make the world match your goal by realizing it in the world. So you want to stand on the top of Mount Everest, 
for example, and you make, then you make that the case. So you want to find a cure for cancer, and then you do so. And just as for knowledge, a true belief must be justified, and so not true as a matter of luck, so for the achievement that I think has value, the realization of your goal must have been predictable given how you were pursuing it. So that too is not a matter of luck, but something you deserve. So you have to have been going about the, the pursuit of the goal in, in, a way in, which made, in a way that made you likely to achieve it so that your success was justified. I can see how that's you know, very close to knowledge, just the relationship running in the opposite direction. And there are also parallels with knowledge in the features that determine how valuable an achievement is. Um, one, again, is how extended the content of your goal is, or how much of the world you change. And that's one explanation why the practical activity of politicians, who affect many other people rather than just a few, has so often been seen by philosophers as the paradigm practical good. I mean, in Aristotle, for example, the, the lives are the philosopher's life and um, the politician's life, rather than some other life of practical activity. Um, but another involves the same hierarchical relations that make for more explanatory knowledge. Now the, now the most valuable achievements are those that require you to achieve a large number of other goals as means to them. So you pursue an integra integrated sequence of goals, achieving this as a means to that, with your ultimate achievement, the one that's the most valuable, because it unifies and rationalizes the rest. And what this means in particular is that there's special value in achievements that are complex and difficult. So tying your shoes isn't a valuable achievement because it involves just a few easy steps, but climbing Mount Everest or introducing a major reform in your country's politics is valuable because the many different steps it involves make it difficult. Now in history of philosophy, lots of philosophers have recognized the value of knowledge, Plato, Aristotle, Hegel, and lots of people saw it as the greatest good, but achievement, as I understand it, has been much less discussed. Many philosophers thought we have two rational capacities, each the locus of one intrinsic good. And if knowledge is the good on the theoretical side, and moral virtue, as these philosophers assumed, is the good on the practical side, that leaves no room for a further good of achievement. <coughs> now, virtue and achievement often coincide. That's the case if you virtuously pursue an intrinsically good goal, such as the relief of somebody else's pain, and successfully achieve it. But even here, the goods are distinct, because how virtuous your activity is depends on how good your goal is and how strongly you're committed to it. Whereas how great your achievement is depends on how difficult the goal is to realize. So you can engage in virtuous activity that's easy or difficult activity that isn't virtuous. And sometimes achievement is found by itself. This happens most clearly in sports and games because there your goal is intrinsically trivial. There's no value in itself in standing on top of a mountain or getting a ball into a hole in the ground or arranging the pieces on a chessboard in the pattern that makes for checkmate. But the rules of the game ensure that if you achieve those goals in accordance with them, you've done something difficult, and as a difficult achievement, I think that has value. And the same occurs in the world of business. Maybe I'll get argued. I don't think the world is intrinsically better if people drink Coke rather than Pepsi, or use Apple rather than BlackBerry smartphones. Um, but if you found a business and make it successful, so it ends up with the largest share of its market, that too is a difficult and valuable achievement. And there rightly are business as well as sports halls of fame. Um, a further non-moral good some have discussed is aesthetic appreciation, either of natural beauty or of art. Now, philosophically, that can be understood in different ways. Some people have taken um, the appreciation of art to involve knowledge, either of the elements of 
the work and their arrangement or of significant truths about the world or our human situation that the work imparts. Others have taken to involve more distinctively the awareness and appreciation of beauty. Either way, aesthetic appreciation can be a third non-moral good alongside scientific and other knowledge and achievement. So those are some goods that arise out of the mindless pleasures objection. The second objection to hedonistic and preference views, the ones about um, uh, sadistic pleasure and compassionate pain, points to the moral good of virtue and evil of vice. The idea here is that your life is better or more worth living if you're benevolent, compassionate, and just than if you're selfish or malicious. Now, these virtues are, of course, instrumentally good, since someone who's benevolent will do more good to others than if he were selfish. But the idea is that it's also good, he's also in a better condition himself, or living a life that's more desirable even apart from its effects. So what is virtue? My understanding of virtue differs from that coming out of you know, ancient philosophers like Aristotle and dominant in writing on virtue today. But to me, virtue involves morally fitting attitudes to other previously given goods and evils, and vice unfitting attitudes. More specifically, virtue involves loving what is good, that is, desiring, pursuing, and taking pleasure in it for its own sake, and hating what is evil, while vice involves loving what is evil and hating what is good. So if another person's pleasure is a good thing, then your desiring it and pursuing it for its own sake is another good thing. It's virtuous and more specifically benevolent. If his pain is evil, wanting to end it and being pained by it if you can't end it is virtuous and compassionate. But wanting and pursuing his pain as an end in itself, or taking pleasure in his pain, as a a sadistic torturer does, is vicious. So in this view, virtue and vice are higher-level intrinsic values involving, respectively, good and evil attitudes to other good and evil things. Virtue involves caring in the right way about other good and evil things. It's a good that involves caring in the right way about other good and evil things. And vice is an evil that involves caring in the wrong way about other good and evil things. Now, virtue and vice, therefore, can't be the only uh, intrinsic values. Um, They presuppose other values that they respond to, but they can each be one value, i.e. one good or evil among others. Now, some philosophers have regarded virtue as the greatest of goods. You know the the Anscombe formula, the virtues are those traits that you need in order to flourish or live well. It's only the virtues that you need to flourish. Everything else is kind of minor. But to me, virtue is a lesser good in the following sense. I think the value of an attitude to an object is always less than the value of that object. Thus, while compassion is a good thing, the situation where one person is in pain and another feels compassion for his pain is less good than if there were no pain and no compassion. I hope people will agree with that. A world with pain and people feeling compassion for it is less good than a world with no pain and no compassion. But then that means that the compassion must be less good than the pain is evil. Nonetheless, virtue can ha- though virtue has always got less value than its object, it can have more value than other instances of other goods. That's your compassion for another person's intense pain can have more value than some mild pleasure you feel, for example, from eating a chocolate bar, and thus be a significant, if not the dominant, element in your good. Well, that's been a brief sketch of a pluralistic theory of the good, one recognizing as ultimate goods good feeling, with with forms referred to as pleasure and ones referred to as happiness, two goods involving relation to outside reality, namely knowledge and achievement, a possible fourth non-moral good of aesthetic appreciation, and a fifth good of moral virtue with its opposed evil of moral vice. I don't claim these are the only ultimate intrinsic goods. 
For one thing, there may be further goods that involve a pattern of distribution across persons, maybe an equal distribution of other goods or one proportion to dessert, and there may be further goods that, like the above five, are stakes of individuals. But I think at least many other goods can be seen as derivative from one of the five or as combining instances of them. So just to take one example, you know, personal love you know, found in romantic love or parental affection, I don't think that is a distinct good. I think it's just something that involves all these other goods to a high degree. So in personal relationships, you get a great deal of pleasure from another person's company. You have an understanding of his or her character. You have joint achievements with this person. And most centrally, you have a virtuous concern for her happiness, um, success, and overall flourishing. Uh, so, you know, that, I mean, that, that might be persuasive. It might not. But the idea is that there's a suggested list of, I think, was it five? One, two, three? Yeah. Five possible goods. There may be more. I'm not saying that there aren't. Um, but at least many other goods can be seen as vo involving instances of those five to a high degree. Now, pluralistic theory has to be able to weigh its different goods against each other. Um, that's the kind of thing many people find problematic. But the same intuitive judgments that identify the different goods enable us at least sometimes to compare instance of, instances of them. I take it all, that all who value knowledge and pleasure will say that understanding all the physical laws of the universe has more value than the pleasure of eating one chocolate bar. And on the other side, that a thousand years of ecstasy, intense ecstasy, is better than knowing who's, who won the FA Cup in 1962. Um, intuitive judgments like those don't take us all the way we might want or resolve all conflicts among goods, but then that's just how ethics is. No plausible theory yields completely determinate judgments in all circumstances, and the demand for complete determinacy is therefore unreasonable. So that's a sketch of a theory. I just wanted to close by suggesting some ways that its distinctive elements, the ones other than um, pleasure and preference satisfaction, might figure in social policy. Because um, you know, this is a practical ethics application. So just start with the idea that there's an intrinsic value in knowledge. Its most obvious application is to educational policy, in particular concerning the curriculum. So our schools and universities devote considerable time to teaching pure mathematics, history, science, ancient languages, and many other things. So on what basis? I mean, some people might try to justify the, these features of the curriculum on the ground that learning these subjects will better enable students to find jobs in the future or get pleasure later in life. But those arguments seem to be pretty much of a stretch. You know, how, much, how much better will you be at a job from knowing, I don't know, ancient history? And will you really get more pleasure later in life from having learned ancient history than having learned something else, done something else in school. Um, the better and simpler explanation, justification, is just that having a basic understanding of the world and the history of your culture is good in itself and something education should therefore provide independently of any further effects. The same holds, of course, for um, university research. Much work in pure mathematics and, yes, philosophy does not and will never have practical benefits. In the theory of justice, um, Rawl said that such research should only be supported with public funds if it passes. I forgot to look. I think it's called the Wicksell unanimity test. Does anyone remember this? Anyone remember this from Section 50 of A Theory of Justice? It's got to pass a Wicksell unanimity test, which is basically a test of promoting economic growth. So you can only fund university research if it promotes economic growth. Um, a great deal of current research wouldn't pass that test and is, again, better justified on the ground than understanding important truths 
is a good thing in itself. Likewise for aesthetic appreciation, our schools also spend a great deal of time teaching literature, art, and music, but not the watching of mud wrestling and roller derby. Um, again, sort of, um, some people will say, I might as well tie the two together. There's also the issue of government, it's, it's educate, including art and music and literature in the school curriculum, and there's government support for the arts um, to be attended by adults. So those are two related aspects. Now, some people, the kind of Rawlsians, will, they want to be able to go to the opera in New York. They want to be Rawlsians, but they want to go to the opera in New York without paying. Um, and so they argue that government support for the arts is justified. Why? Because it promotes democratic citizenship or it enables you to choose between autonomously between forms of life. But those arguments are, again, a stretch. I mean, in what way does attending the opera make you better able to choose between being a lawyer and being an accountant? Um, um, it's a stretch. The better explanation is just that exposure to an appreciation of art enriches your life by itself and as the appreciation of art. I was going to say, this week's issue of The Economist has got an article about government funding of arts in Britain. I don't know if anybody saw that. Um, and it rejects the idea of art for art's sake as special pleading. Well, of course it's special pleading if you assume with The Economist that you know, everything has to be justified in economic terms. But if it is, then there, there won't be um, uh, government support for arts. What about achievement? Um, I didn't say, I think another case where another good can be seen as an instance of one of the five is that autonomous self-direction, where you yourself choose the main features of your life, can be understood as an aspect of achievement, because then you make it the case that you live one life rather than another. And if you choose, let's say, to be a lawyer from a wide range of career options, then you're the one who made it the case that you're a lawyer, and you're also the one who made it the case that you're not an accountant, not a plumber, not a philosophy professor, and so on and so on. So I see plausibly or not, um, achievement as having, as one of its important instances, you're determining through your own choices what the content of your life will be. Well, if that is one of the values of achievement, then from the value of achievement, we get some support for a liberal state, which leaves people free to make decisions about their own lives. There's a tradition going back to Mill that justifies liberal freedom on the grounds that everybody is the best judge of what will make him happy or what will make him life, his life best. But that's another argument that seems a total stretch because lots of people are totally hopeless about what will make their lives best. And I think you get a better grounding for liberal freedom if you say, no, a person's choosing his own life is valuable in itself, even if it doesn't lead him to um, the life that's otherwise best. And of course, in Mills on Liberty, that's another strand of thinking, that choosing your own life is itself an instance of your good. Um, in addition, I think the value of achievement gives some moral support to a free market economy. Not only does that economy leave individuals free to choose their own career, which is an important instance of autonomy, it also gives them opportunities for entrepreneurship and through it business achievement. In a command and control economy, the bureaucrats who direct everyone else may have large-scale achievements, but in a free market, anyone can found a company, make it successful, and have that significant, pure achievement. I don't know how big an argument that is for a free market economy, but one thing a free market economy does is allow people to form business projects and, with luck, make them successful. What about, uh, what about moral virtue? Are there any social policy implications for the idea that a virtuous life is better than a vicious? Life. Well, there are obviously instrumental reasons to try and get 
the citizens of society to be virtuous, for example, by promoting that in the school system, since if people benevolently desire each other's happiness, they'll do things that promote it. But there also have been economic and social arguments that appeal to the intrinsic value of virtue. Let me start with a bad one. Um, so in Aristotle's politics, he gave us one argument against the proposal for com communal ownership in Plato's Republic, the fact that it makes liberal or generous acts by citizens impossible. So what's bad about the Republic is that the individuals can't act generously or liberally. And a similar argument has been made by some present-day neoconservatives who argue against the welfare state that it removes the occasion for private charity. Welfare state is bad because it removes the occasion for private charity. Now that's a terrible argument since it assesses economic arrangements only by their effect on the moral character of the rich without any concern for the material or other condition of the poor. But especially if, as I suggested um, before, the value of a virtuous object is always less than that of its object, the condition of the poor should be the primary consideration. But other arguments from similar premises are more cogent. Um, some people know the book The Gift Relationship by Richard Titmus about um, the supply of blood. Well, he famously argued that the provision of blood is better uh, restricted to voluntary donation, as it is in Britain and Canada, than opened up to buying and selling in the market, as it is in the United States. And one of his reasons was the intrinsic value of altruism. Um, the organization of social institutions, and in particular those governing health and welfare, he wrote, um, now i just quote from Tidmus, can encourage or discourage the altruistic in man. They can allow the theme of the gift of generosity towards strangers to spread among and between social groups and generations. And he thought this an effect that is insufficiently recognized as against those on consumer choice and material acquisitiveness. So there's the argument that one reason for preferring a system of voluntary blood donation is that it encourages um, altruistic giving on the part of people and therefore a society in which people engage in that. Now, there, there are obvious limitations to that argument. I mean, we wouldn't prefer a voluntary and therefore altruistic provision of blood if it was so inefficient that it resulted in many additional deaths. But if the inefficiency made it just somewhat more expensive, I think it would, might be right to prefer a society where people voluntarily contribute blood from altruistic concern for each other to one in which they contribute the same amount but just from a desire for some cash. And so there were similar appeals to effects on virtue sort of at a larger scale. I'm just pulling books from the British old books from the British left. So people know R.H. Taney's book Equality. I think this is from the 1930s. Um, Jonathan Glover told me it was kind of a Bible of the Labour Party. Anyways, it's a defense of equal economic distribution. And among Taney's several arguments for a more dis equal distribution of income, one said that it's important both instrumentally and I think in itself that society form a community so its members treat each other not as means but as ends. Um, but large inequalities in wealth and income, Tawny thought, work against that ideal. They, quote, create a spirit of domination and servility which produces callousness in those who profit by them and resentment in those who do not and suspicion and contention in both. So his idea was that if you have society with material inequality, that inhibits the growth of, growth of virtuous mutual regard. And he hoped that a society with a more equal distribution of income would be one in which those altruistic emotions would flourish. Um, and a related argument can be directed at a competitive market economy. So precisely because a market economy operates by competition, it can be argued, it encourages in people a desire to defeat others and do them down. You're trying to outcompete your rivals. 
But that's the opposite of a virtuous desire for other people's good. So the idea is that a competitive market economy fosters selfishness rather than the altruism that's part of the ideal. Now, I can't remember whether that's a part of Tawny. I mean, it would be a natural thing for him to say. Here, however, there's a contrary argument that can be made, and this notes that the market rewards activities that serve other people or promote their good. And if that was done most effectively by people who, who want to serve others for its own sake, um, if you can't fake service, rather than just as a means to their own enrichment, then in this respect, the market rewards and encourages the virtue of altruism. But those are two arguments that try to assess a competitive economy, not just on the basis of how much production does it lead to, but what kind of people does it foster? Does it people foster people who have a con concern for each other, or does it foster people who have a concern to outcompete each other and do each other down and destroy each other's livelihoods? So, I mean, those arguments are obviously very hard to make precise, you know, to, to, to attach values to or to or use to arrive at concrete conclusions. You know, does the market do more on balance to make people more selfish or more altruistic? And whichever is true, how important is that effect against its tendency to promote people's happiness by encouraging material pro productivity and the satisfaction of their preferences? Is a poorer but more virtuous society preferable or one that's richer but more selfish? So those aren't easy questions to answer. But then I just, the point is if you, I think, if you think about what the components of an individual's good are, there isn't a single answer that's persuasive. Um, there, are there are several aspects of any individual's good. I tried to identify five, and there may be more, and those have to be weighed against each other, which is difficult even in the context of one person's life, and is even more difficult if you're trying to use those weighings to assess an overall economic system. But as I said, that may be just the way ethics is. There's no reason to think the correct ethical theory is the most simple, and it's not going to be the most simple theoretically or the most simple to apply in practice. Okay.